Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. I am over the moon that today you have the chance to hear from someone who epitomizes being who you are and succeeding on your terms. This human being is a case of what you see barely scratches the surface of what you get. Someone who walks the walk with that stellar combination of humility and self-confidence. I'll share a few highlights from his pioneering 30-plus year career as a world-class business operator, successfully running both traditional offline financial services and highly technical fintech enterprises. While president of Citibank Online, he led a turnaround of Citi's two U.S. online businesses, then ranked number nine and number 17 to create the number one ranked online bank in the U.S. The complete business and technical integration was done in just 90 days garnering that number one ranking just five weeks after launch. Goldman Sachs recognized his turnaround as a key example of why Citibank would succeed online in the post-John Reed era. And MIT Sloan School of Management has a case study on it. He also headed up Citi's global online banking technology group operating in 53 countries. At American Express, he was responsible for influencing the Postmaster General and CFO of the U.S. Postal Service, to accept credit cards for the very first time and went on to found and general manage the company's government services division. At the same time, he was asked to serve as the chief compliance officer for a $100 billion plus division that managed relationships with Amex merchants. So adept at establishing trust, influence, and leading change, he intentionally changed his own path leaving the realm of big corporates to serve as chair and CEO of three successful private equity-backed fintech companies. He went on to find Montpelier, rather to found Montpelier Ventures, a financial services and fintech management consulting and investment firm, where he now primarily coaches CEOs, advises small companies in their mergers and acquisitions, and serves on numerous boards, private and nonprofit. I think he'd say he's found his true north. We'll see. But most of all, most importantly, he is an adoring father, husband, and family member with strong ties to his local community. And I am delighted to introduce my dear friend, a confidant and trusted advisor, Mark Parcells. Mark, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thank you, Molly. It is so nice to be here with you, and thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate you making time, and yours is just uh, an inspiring journey. We have to do a a shout out for our beloved Marshall Goldsmith, because it was only because of Marshall that I first sat like around a corner of a table to you thinking about, hmm, you know, who is this guy? And I do have to say, I recall like it was an instant fast friend. It was one of those things where I'm like, wow, this, this person is real. Yeah, well, thank you. And I remember that exact time when you sat next to me and, you know, I was... I changed my life forever. I think <laughs> you're in my uh, uh, time together over the last, I think, four years now has just been a really wonderful experience. And it's great to speak to you 
as often as we do. Yeah, I appreciate it. And for listeners, you know, when you can cultivate people that you really you know, care about as human beings and who you know just help you be better and you can do that for each other, it's a pretty special thing. And I really encourage folks uh, to think about that, you know, in terms of your relationships to others and how others can um, bring it back for you because it's super gratifying. Um, and I know my friend here has been on a super tear and recently closed a very life-changing transaction for a client. And, and I'm looking very forward to learning more about his current work. Um, but while your career is chock full of many, many impressive results from the past, I am um, really keen for listeners to hear about the behind the scenes. You know, and as you reflect on your life journey, you know, what, who has most impacted who you are? Yeah, so I'm the youngest of four boys. Uh, my mother had us all within five years. So obviously she earned her sainthood, um, earned her sainthood. Uh, my father had an interesting background. He was a minister um, and then a CEO of a business. His mother, who was CEO of a nursing home chain back in the 60s, 70s, she wanted him to become a minister. So he went to divinity school. And when I was very young, I remember being the son of a minister. And then he later became a CEO. Um, but my father, my mother, and uh, my grandmother were all very big influences on me. So four boys within five years for people listening, that's like unimaginable. So was, and I had a friend who actually was one of, I think five. And he said to me, you don't understand when the food it was like five, four, three, two, one, when the food came on the table, it was like all for his own. Cause if you didn't get it there, you weren't <laughs> going to get as much to eat. Was that like that in the parcels household? Yeah, it was kind of like that. In it. And I think the, you know, we always had enough in that, my mother made enough so that we, you know, we were all pretty active as kids. But what I remember most about sitting around the table is we would each try to crack each other up just in the middle of when one of us was taking a really big bite of something. And we'd like to try to see if um, we could, you know, uh, I won't describe what, what, what happened when somebody laughs with a mouthful of food, but you can imagine. <laughs> and, uh, so we always had a lot of fun at the dinner table. And if we weren't cracking each other up, we were typically having some sort of political discussion or something. Wow. So in the family, was there a need for a disciplinarian? Was that the dad? Was that the mom? Um, there was definitely a need for a disciplinarian. Um, my father was that person. My oldest brother was very much a hippie. He had very long hair and he, you know, marched for women's rights and he marched for, you know, uh, everything under the sun. And, you know, he um, did what hippies did back then, which much to the chagrin of my parents. But as the youngest child, I was really happy about that because by the time I came around and I got to my teen years, I could pretty much do anything because I never did anything as bad as my oldest brother. <laughs> <laughs> he really made you look good. 
Yeah, he did. <laughs> I mean, he's a phenomenal guy and he was super successful in life, but he, he was the definition of a renegade. Wow. So is there a big competitive streak? Were you trying to outdo each other? Yeah, we were a very, very competitive family. Every one of us played three sports. We, um, a lot of it was driven by my father. He was kind of, when I was a kid, I always was focused on succeeding, but not necessarily because I was super driven to do everything I was driven, but I knew I couldn't come home not being the president of my class. In fact, I was the only kid in my schools, still to this day, 235 year history, who was class president from seventh grade through 12th grade, because I knew I couldn't come home and tell my dad. I couldn't just tell him I got elected to something. If I did, he'd say, well, are you president? And, you know, <laughs> I got 10 varsity letters. All my brothers got that many letters. Um, you know, I was only captain of two teams when two of my brothers were captain of three teams. So I kind of failed in that competition. But I think you get the picture. We were very, very competitive. And a lot of it was due to the expectations of our father. So how, you know, while, while that was going on, was there any resentment? Like, oh, my God, these other kids are doing drugs or driving too fast. And I'm like, you know, I only have X number of varsity letters. Or, I mean, how did you handle that? Or was that just super inspirational? Yeah, I mean, it was inspirational. I mean, look, we went to a small school, so it's not like any of us were the best athletes. I think we all had heartbeats, so, you know, we could make the teams, you know. So, um, but, but uh, what was great about it for me is when you have three older brothers, you are very confident. Because especially with my oldest brother, nobody was going to mess with you when you've got a brother who's five years older uh, and he stayed back one year when we moved. So he and my next oldest brother were in the same year together. So we were only four years apart. So, you know, they were very popular and all my brothers were pretty popular. So therefore, it made it easy for me to be accepted by not just kids in my class, but the older kids. So um, it was kind of just a blast, you know, it, my whole school experience. There were some things that weren't so good on the home front, but from the actual school uh, experience, um, it was pretty great to have three older brothers. Wow. Say, say more about what wasn't so great on the home front. Well, so, so, my parents got divorced, but, you know, this is a very traditional story that, you know, this is back in the um, later 70s that I graduated from high school. But actually, when I was 10, it turned out they had gotten divorced. But, they, but there was a real stigma if you were in the family of a divorced couple. So they didn't tell anybody. <laughs> wow. They didn't tell anybody, and including their children. 
But my father, who had a number of businesses, he was traveling all the time and particularly traveling from the time I was around 10 when they actually split. I didn't learn all the details until I was 20. But you can imagine that he was gone almost every weekend, but he wasn't gone for the right reasons. And while he was a very inspirational guy, you know, there was this undercurrent of anxiety that really developed. And the more my brothers went off to high school, the more I was isolated in this environment. But, you know, they still lived in the same house, but they, you know, there was a really unusual um, tension that you can imagine in that type of scenario. Wow, that is a lot for a young person to handle, Mark. Yeah, I think it, it um, you know, certainly led to my college decision going off to Emory, down to Atlanta. I wanted to be as far away from, I grew up in, um, in, I was born in Philly and grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I really just wanted to kind of get away from the situation. It wasn't like they ever fought in front of me, but it was just the tension that clearly, you know, is there of two people who should not be together who were together. I, I always say he was very accomplished um, extraordinary man with the exception of he he was extraordinarily human our parents are just humans like we are and just like we don't have a um, book of instructions they didn't either did they make mistakes yes but um, what I always I my parents always taught me to try to learn from mistakes and the one thing I learned from that situation is that I will never get married until I know I'm going to stay married for the rest of my life. And how did you know? I mean, I've chatted with your wife, but I haven't, I haven't met her in person yet. Well, first of all, I was 34 years old when I proposed to my wife. So I made sure um, that I was not too young to get married. And, um, you know, we met at American Express. Uh, she's, you know, uh, very, um, very compassionate person, very smart, uh, very outgoing, and just a really wonderful person. And, um, you know, the, the key is, I think we were both at the right age where we had, we had sown whatever wild oats we were going to sow and we were mature enough to say, okay, we're ready to commit. Wise words, young people. I love how folks are paying <laughs> attention. It's really spectacular to be able to grow old together and learn from each other is a wonderful thing. Uh, take us through the career journey. And, you know, it's, um, it's really remarkable what you've done and how you perhaps left behind what other people maybe would have thought impossible to leave behind and chart new waters. Um, I first went to the U.S. Senate. I was a political science major, and I worked for a guy named John Hines. He was, if you ever heard of Hines Ketchup, 
He was H. John Hines III. Um, he was the heir to the ketchup fortune and very smart guy. Um, and I spent four years with him um, really learning about how uh, the government worked. I met, um, you know, many, many very senior leaders at a very young age, and it really gave me a great perspective that helped me throughout my career uh, appreciate um, the, that leaders are just regular people too. So you, I got um, exposure that you typically wouldn't get when you're 21 years old. Wow. Leaders are just people too. That is pretty, pretty wise for a 21-year-old because it took me a long time to figure that out. And how did you, um, you know, how did you find, if you will, politics? I mean, did it, was it just always fascinating to you? Did you? Is that something you inherently really understood? Well, you know, one of my father's companies was, he, he was the first, he had the first lobbying firm in Pennsylvania. And so when I was in high school, um, particularly when my brothers graduated, I, would, I was going out almost every night with a representative, uh, senator, governor, whoever, to dinner with him. He would take me on these dinners. And I got to hear how things actually really work. <laughs> and a lot of it's through personal relationships. And... When I, was, when I worked in the Senate, you really saw both parties come together. And I observed a couple very significant leaders um, come over to my boss. And I participated in a couple of them because, you know, when I was with him, a lot of times I was, you know, just in the room and he would let me stay in there. And they'd say, okay, publicly we made our uh, stances. We've taken our stances. Now, what's it going to take to get this thing done? What do you need? And I'll tell you what I need. Wow. That's phenomenal to have that inside view at such a young age, Mark. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that once I went to business school, I really learned much more about the details of business. But in terms of learning about communication and learning about how to deal with people. I'm not sure there's a better job than being a staff person in either a U.S. Senator's office, in the White House, in a congressman's office, congressperson's office. You really get exposed to the highest levels and you really get exposed to how decision-making is done. That's crazy. So how did you, why did you decide to leave that at four years? Well, I always thought that I would want to run for office myself. And I did not want to be a, a Senate staffer my whole career. I, I felt like I needed to get real life experience and, being a staffer in the U.S. Senate is not the real world, right? So it is very great to get exposure, but you really need, I felt 
and Senator Hines and my father both encouraged me to go out and really get some real world experience. So that's when I ended up, Senator Hines was on the board of Harvard Business School. My dad had gone to uh, Warden undergrad to, to University of Pennsylvania. He wanted me to go to Warden, being a Pennsylvanian. But I didn't want to go to where either one of them wanted me to go because I wanted to cut my own path. And I ended up going to Cornell uh, Johnson Graduate School of Management, which you know well, being a Cornell undergrad, and uh, got a very good scholarship. And at the time, it was ranked number three in U.S. News and World Reports. So I felt like I was in a great place. And that was the beginning of my business career. And how did you find, since you're so advanced on the people part, I am wondering if you were, if you found it interesting, because a lot of folks don't have that much you know, business experience when they get to school. Did you feel like uh, you were a little surprised where folks were, or did you just fit right in? Well, I, I think a lot of it, a lot of the kids were more, much more advanced than I was academically because as a political science major, I didn't take, you know, any accounting or, you know, I took like a basic finance class. Um, and so I definitely felt like I was much more advanced in terms of feeling comfortable with the dean of the school and all the, the legendary professors but, you know, when the first, you know, um, accounting exam came around and all the undergrads from Wharton that were there that didn't place out because they wanted to pad their GPA, they got like hundreds on the test and I got a 92 and that was like a C. So that was certainly a shock. <laughs> <laughs> would you say that that was a good thing? Would you say you are, you're very humble now? Were you humble back then? Um, you know, I, uh, I don't think I could have been characterized as humble, um, when I was a kid, um, because it, it takes a lot to, to, uh, stand out when you have three brothers. Um, but in, in business school, you know, there, there were definitely some of us who were nine business majors who raised our hand to the Dean and were like, come on, you know, you got to make these guys place out because, you know. <laughs> 92, it's not, okay, it's not an A+, plus, but it's not a, you know, it's not a C either. <laughs> That's too funny. That's crazy. <laughs> so, okay, so fast forward in terms of career path, and, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know what the, the road for MBAs these days is a big decision. It's a big financial decision, and then, you know, you have to really weigh whether it really makes sense for you. But as you went to business school, was it very apparent for you how you were going to take advantage of it moving on in your career? Yeah, no question. Um, you know, when you work in government, in the public sector, you don't get paid well. So I left after four years making $18,500. <laughs> Nine months later in my summer internship at American Express in New York, I worked there 10 weeks and I made $20,000. And I said, this is a lot better. I at least knew I was going to be much better off financially. <laughs> so, so was the money thing uh, sort of an overwhelming thing, which totally would be understandable for a young person? And how did you literally you know, pick what you're going to do after, after graduating? Well, you know, so I had, um, 
I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. You know, the guys who came in from Goldman Sachs, they were trying to get a better job back at either Goldman or, you know, Morgan, one of the big places. And people who were junior marketers were trying to get more senior jobs. I had three resumes. I had one for consulting. You know, I interviewed with the McKinsey's, the Booz, all those places. I had one for investment banking. And I had one for general management or marketing. And because coming from my background, working in the U.S. Senate, I found that everybody was interested in the experience that I had. And it made me kind of stand out because I wasn't just a finance person or just a marketing person. I had this very unique set of experiences. And... Um, so I really wasn't sure. And I thought I was going to want to go into consulting, but I really like to run things. So I decided to go to American Express, where the marketing is the line business. It's where you manage the P&L, because I really wanted to get that experience and make sure that um, that wasn't what I wanted to go into. So I kind of went into it to rule it out. And I ended up loving it. And, and that's the path I took. Wow. Okay. So how did you, you know, and I would assume the, the Washington, D.C. is way more difficult to navigate. But I think for folks to thrive in the bigger organizations, the ability to, you know, see the forest for the trees and also just talk about how you found um, your way there and, and you know, you're pretty true to yourself. So I'm just wondering if, if you were able to be that way or did you feel you had to really uh, morph yourself to fit in? Well, um, you know, first of all, I just want to say to those listening, you were asking, you know, kind of like some people have to decide whether or not they want to go to business school or not. In my view, um, I, I always advise people considering business school if you're going to go, there should only be two reasons to go. One is if you weren't a business undergraduate uh, major and you think you want to go into business, then an MBA is a great path. But if you already have a business background, then it really is important to go to the best school, go to like a top 20 school, uh, because just getting an MBA is not going to really improve your knowledge base that much more. What, what it is, is access. And it's access to these top companies who are saying, okay, well, if Cornell picked you, if Harvard picked you, if uh, the Tuck School of Business Dartmouth picked you, then we, you know, you've already gone through a really tough decision-making process. So we're going to be interested in you as well. Does that make sense? It makes sense. That's great advice for considering it. You know, obviously it's super if you can afford to kind of leave and get a lot of education, but I think these days it has to be a very calculated uh, decision. Um, Absolutely. But to answer your other question about what it was like to get to American Express, I realized, um, so I, I worked my first summer, I worked on the launch of the Optima card, which was American Express's first credit card. You know, most of their cards are charge cards, which means you have to pay it off at the end of every month. 
credit card, of course, means you can just pay a minimum balance and then get charged interest and basically take a loan. So that was the first foray into credit cards for American Express. And I was on a team with only 10 people and I had a very broad job and I absolutely loved it. And because I ended up doing a second MBA, it was a two and a half year program at a school in Belgium. I did another internship in London, worked on the launch of that card. And we only had the the optimal card in London. And we only had four people there. And my job was extraordinarily broad. So I I said, this is great. You know, uh, I'm going to go to Amex. I love it. And then when I got there, I went into the Optima Cart division, which was the hottest division. And there were 300 people in the division now. And I was at the bottom of the total poll. So I was writing decks that I would give right to the president of the division two summers before. And now it had to go through seven edits, you know, layers of management before, you know, she would get to see, you know, my deck. And I, I thought this is not going to work for me. I am not going to be a good junior employee. (laughs) And and I wasn't. I was a terrible junior employee. I did the job, but I tried to get out of there as fast as possible. And so what I did, um, actually, um, before I go there, there's a key communication thing that I learned is that I am really, or I've gotten much, much better. But when I graduated and I was there, I was 29 years old. I was terrible at taking feedback. Terrible. So, you know, at American Express, you got reviewed, you know, from one to five. And I would get all these really good scores on most things and really, really good comments. But I didn't see any of that. I saw the, you know, I remember I had one, I had all these fives and I had one, three and one, four with really helpful, thoughtful comments on how I can improve. And all I thought is I am so mad. How, how dare they, you know, say this about me. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that my father had such unwavering belief in me and thought I could do no wrong. I thought I could do no wrong. And boy, that was a real big, you know, mistake. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for sharing that, Mark. That, that is spectacular. <laughs> I could just see people from the outside like, oh my God, is he really going to implode? We gave him like all this amazing stuff and he's acting like he's a kid. Yeah, exactly. I was acting like I was a kid. They're like, well, wait, Didn't you read all those good comments? And I actually, the very first one I got, I hadn't read any of those. I went right to the negative. (laughs) So it actually, you know, I got much better over time. Um, But boy, could I have used a a Molly Chang or a Marshall Goldsmith, you know, Molly Chang to tell me how to say it skillfully and a world-class executive coach to just smack me around and say, wake the heck up. Um, you know, everybody needs to improve. And, uh, and that starts with you. 
Well, thank you for sharing that. All the listeners take note. Feedback is a gift, as we've said many times on the show before. Um, okay, so talk to us how you uh, karate chopped your way through this organization. What I realized is I am going to be a terrible junior employee. And I did get promoted from assistant manager to manager. So I was very happy about that. But then six months later, I said, okay, I need to go somewhere where I have an experience like I did when I was a summer intern, where I can be, I can have a job that's broader. So I kind of looked and I found the division that was least popular and that was kind of getting ready to be chopped. And I went over and I ended up getting a job there. And I worked with a guy I worked with and we came up with a turnaround plan. And, uh, you know, I won't bore you with all the details, but we ended up turning it around in six months in a very, very significant way. And then I got promoted again to senior manager. And I love that. Um, so I, I loved the success we were able to have because we didn't have all this bureaucracy on top of us. Um, trying to tell us what to do, we were able to really develop a plan and implement it pretty much unrestricted, which is rare in the corporate world. Wow. That's so fun. And then uh, the next stage was I went to the platinum card. So I had done card member acquisition. I had done uh, card member services and the Optima card. Um, or retention. And now I was doing services for the platinum card, got to go to the U S open all the time, which was awesome. Cause we were huge sponsors and um, you know, I, I really learned um, how to develop um, services that really deepen the relationship with the customers and had them paying at that time, $250 for a little piece of plastic when Visa and MasterCard were offering theirs for nothing. And so I really learned a lot about, um, you know, the art and science of marketing in that job. The next move I did, so I've now been in the company about three years and both of my, uh, my um, father and my grandmother always said, if you're going to be uh, general manager, you have to go into sales. And at American Express, marketing was the place, you know, we thought we were, you know, in the ivory tower, we were the hottest, coolest people. And sales was not cool because for sales for American Express was signing up merchants to, for those merchants to pay one full percent more uh, for, uh, to accept our card versus Visa and MasterCard. But long story short, I was able to talk my way into the national sales organization. Um, and the, the uh, head of that group was, he didn't really like the people for marketing. And he gave me kind of some of the worst accounts. And um, one of the areas that I thought we should really focus on is the government um, area. And the conventional wisdom was the government will never accept credit cards because the government is the government and they can't pay your fee. 
And so what I did is develop a little, very simple one-page Excel model. And I did research around, um, I focused on the U.S. Postal Service, the largest single merchant in the world in terms of a number of locations, 40,000 locations. And I looked at their shrinkage, you know, the theft of money, of cash by their employees, which was gigantic, you know, because they have 40,000 locations and there were no cameras back then. And then uh, checks, they, checks would take three to four days to um, clear and they had something like a 20% bad check rate. So I'm like, I think you're paying a whole lot to take cash and to take checks. And so, um, you know, I ended up getting, uh, getting the postmaster general and the CFO to say, okay, we're going to put out an RFP for, um, you know, accepting credit cards. Uh, without going into all the details, I ended up uh, getting put together with a vice chairman of American Express, and we would fly down from New York on one of the corporate helicopters almost every day uh, to make sure we were doing everything right on this RFP and, and to make sure we were included. And they ended up deciding to accept us, Visa, MasterCard, and Discover, and um, then um, we had to create a group and um, I was made a, the youngest vice president and general manager of a group, but now four years in to my post um, MBA career. And uh, that was really a, a fascinating experience. And one of the things out of that experience, Harvey Golub, who was the CEO, he um, had said to the board, you know, we had five major initiatives last year that we promised shareholders we were going to do. But the biggest one was one we didn't even have on our radar. And that's the government. And he, he had invited me to uh, present at the annual meeting. So that was quite a thrill at 31 years old. My God, that's unbelievable. That is <laughs> unbelievable, my friend. Wow, you go. So you catapulted out a junior, <laughs> junior employee <laughs> right up to the top. And then, so, so keep going. How, you know, what did you do from there? And, you know. Okay. So then, um, you know, I had, uh, that went very, very well, grew uh, very large. Um, and, uh, but my wife, uh, I, I ended up uh, proposing to my wife, who is also at American Express. She's from Baltimore. I'm from Philadelphia. We, um, and we were starting to think about having children and boom, I woke up one morning and uh, had a couple uh, lumps in my neck and I never went to the doctor. And so my wife surprised when I said, um, I think I need to go to the doctor today because I wasn't sick, but these felt like lymph nodes. Mm. Um, and um, it was very unusual. So um, it, it later turned out about a month later after I did a biopsy and things that I had lymphoma. Mm. And uh, I, I found out that in December, we had been married October 1st, the year before. I made it clear to my wife that the warranty was only good for one year and that was now expired. So she couldn't turn me back in. <laughs> um, 
And uh, I went through five months of very heavy radiation treatment at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Continued to work during that time, but that's what really gave me some significant perspective about, you know, what's really important. And um, I continued to work, but it started to make me think that there's more than just racing to the top to become CEO of a major corporation. So I was then recruited down to First USA, which was bought by Bank One and then Chase. It was at that time the second largest credit card issuer in the country. And it was in Wilmington, Delaware, right between our families. Um, and this was in uh, 1997, because by this time, um, my wife had gotten pregnant. We, we had to delay a couple of years because of the cancer. And we didn't, um, we just made a decision. We wanted to raise the kids closer to where our parents were. So did that. I did a turnaround of a couple billion dollar division. And then uh, I got into the internet. Uh, we had an online only bank called Wingspan. Um, and I uh, worked on um, undoing a uh, $500 million of, um, of banner ad deals that this group had done. Uh, they were on the cutting edge. Then they bought uh, hundreds of millions of banner ads. But this was the forefront of buying banner ads. And they were totally untargeted, so they weren't paying off and we were losing a ton of money. So I was in that job for six months. The CEO of the overall uh, uh, First USA got fired. So this group was under First USA. I got recruited by a guy, um, Norm Selby and John Reed, to go up to Citigroup and... Um, run their online uh, product strategy globally, which was a huge job. I was very excited about it. And on the train on the way up, I had a little radio in my ear. And they said, John Reed resigned today from America, from, from Citigroup. Oh, no. <laughs> so that, I, I knew that was going to be quite an interesting experience. And um, so they realized that they didn't want to get rid of me right away because I had a um, pretty healthy contract that they just didn't want to pay me on for being there for three days. So um, <laughs> they put me together with the vice chairman of Citigroup and we together, he was the former chairman of Solomon Brothers, and we restructured 64 online businesses, which John Reed had built. And we took all the talent and we put it into the line businesses. And one of the strategies I came up with was for online banking and in the United States. And we had two online banks. One was ranked number nine, one was ranked number 17. And I said that the right strategy is you know, to put the online only bank, um, the front end on top of our back end of this, uh, the other bank, uh, direct access. 
and I really believe you'll um, be able to be the best bank in the country online. So that was just a strategy. And the next day, I found out Sandy Wild fired both the CEOs and made me the CEO of that or made me the president of that business. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm sorry. That is really, this is like bonfire at the vanities. I know I'm really dating myself. This is <laughs> fabulous. Wow. So then you pursued to take no prisoners and off you went. Yeah. So, you know, Sandy was under tremendous pressure from Wall Street because John Reed, you know, he went to MIT. He's brilliant. He, um, He's the father of the ATM. He's the guy who uh, created uh, and sold in the concept of ATMs when it first came out. Everybody thought he was nuts. Everybody, everybody said, who in the right mind would use um, a machine to get cash? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, my God. And that, that was really true. It, and people thought that was a crazy idea. Who would not want to go to a human being who's a teller? And so when this guy got fired, it, you know, by, by the time it turned out he got fired, it came out in the Wall Street Journal article that there was a board coup. And um, well, Wall Street said, how can you fire like the most brilliant guy in, in uh, banking? And so... It was really a goal of the city to get some business in the top three of the online banks. And that was why I developed the strategy. And, but, but in order to do it and do it quickly, I asked to get out of the regular Citibank uh, monthly meeting where you have to develop a 200-page deck and present in front of all the presidents and I said, can I just have like a weekly meeting for 15 minutes for, to resolve the issues? And I will deliver this new combined business in 90 days. He thought I was absolutely insane. My staffs thought I was absolutely insane. My wife thought I was insane. The only person who didn't think I was insane, well, there are two people, my father, of course, and me. So um, we stormed, formed, and normed. I brought both companies together. They were very competitive, did not like each other. I brought them down to a room and said, put your Blackberries down. <laughs> Remember the old Blackberries? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want to tell them what my strategy was. I wanted them to come to it. And so I told them, look, I've just been made CEO of both of the businesses you guys are all shareholders. You guys know you're in the hottest sector, uh, you know, tech, which was just emerging. So whatever happens here, everybody's going to end up with a job either in the company or outside of the company. But I want you all to put shareholder hats on and really figure out what the right decision is. So, the, so for one week, the first two days, the, the two companies, the management of the both companies sat on different sides of the room, didn't speak. Then by Wednesday, everybody thought, this guy's nuts. He's really not going to let us out of the room. <laughs> so they started talking to each other. And by Friday, they came up with a strategy 
to take the front end of the online only business and put it on the back end of the business, the exact strategy I had laid out um, to Sandy and uh, to the, the guys who were the leadership. And uh, so we did end up launching in 90 days. And five weeks later, we were chosen as the number one online bank in the country. Oh my God. So you're just like on fire. This is on fire. Unbelievable, Mark. So this, so in terms of life decisions, though, I now was feeling like I was the top of the world, but they also gave me the additional responsibility of online banking technology in 53 more countries. And that represented about 280 more businesses because we had multiple businesses in each country. And so I started realizing after nine months managing, you know, as the CEO of this business, I was out on the road speaking all the time, um, doing lots of interviews, traveling around the world. I never saw my wife and kids. And so I made the decision in April of 2001 that I need to leave. And everybody, my father-in-law, everybody said, you are absolutely nuts. You are at the pinnacle. You're at a company with 450,000 employees. You, you know, they're, they're, you know, basically saying you do anything you want, but, you know, continue to run this business. But, you know, there was that experience in having cancer. And then also, you know, I'm, I, I am, uh, I, I have my own faith, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I believe in, you know, there's, something more than just us here in the, um, uh, you know, us humans down here. And I had a really strong feeling that I needed to leave that job, even though there was not one person who thought it was a good idea. So I ended up taking a job, a uh, much smaller company, 60 million, uh, but working with Hank Greenberg at AIG. And I left in April of 2001. And the reason that, the reason I tell you that story is on September 11th, uh, 2001, I was scheduled to be the speaker at the online banking technology conference. They didn't call it FinTech yet, at Windows on the World at nine o'clock in the morning. And wow. because I went to an insurance, this was now an insurance technology company, I had to hand off it was, this is a banking conference. So I handed off to somebody else who fortunately got delayed and wasn't killed, but everybody in that conference room was killed that day. Wow. That is something. It's amazing. It's really amazing. You, um, yeah, there's something, uh, divine in the universe about that, Mark. Thank you for sharing. And boy, am I glad you're here. Thank you. And, and, you know, for my, my kids, I made the decision that I'm going to focus on my wife and kids. So I ended up moving three businesses to Wilmington, Delaware, where I live over 15 years, being chairman and CEO of these fintech businesses I coached each one of my kids, um, soccer, basketball, and lacrosse teams. 
I know all their friends. I'm very, very close to both my children and, uh, and my wife. And um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, and so I really took a big shift away from the G5s and, you know, the big corporate, which is nothing wrong with that. But I think as leaders and as, as people, we have to make the decision what is most important to us? And it's always most important to do what you think is the right thing to do. Because if you do what other people think is the right thing to do, but you don't, you're always going to regret that. And you're probably not going to be a very happy person. Mark, I think we're going to leave it at there. You uh, are amazing. You inspire. I am cheering for you even more in awe. Obviously, we're in touch regularly, but if I can ever be uh, even more supportive, I'm here for you. I uh, thank you for being you, uh, and I thank you for being part of the solution. We need more of you in the world. You take good care, my friend. Thank you, Molly. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, So my thought for the week Do what you think is the right thing to do. No regrets. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Mark's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.